today we're going to be continuing into a series that I started last month, one month ago actually, called The Prodigal Prophet. And we're going to be breaking down the story of Jonah. And last month, I asked you guys if you were familiar with the story of Jonah. And I think majority of everyone raised their hand, right? And they think of the big fish that swallowed this dude named Jonah. And then like Jonah went and did what God wanted. And we're like, hooray, right? Uh, and most of you guys are aware of the story because of like VeggieTales, right? But I... <laughs> You know, the fish, the fish is just like one verse in the entire book of Jonah, right? And that's not the point of the book of Jonah. And so media, things like VeggieTales, uh, have taken these biblical stories, not just Jonah, but they've taken these biblical stories and they've turned them into these very simple, feel-good, kind of surface-level meaning stories, and we miss so much when we do that, right? And so that's why my challenge with this sermon series, The Prodigal Prophet, as we discover the, the book of Jonah, that we clear away the vegetation, so to say, right? And we start new, with a new perspective and a new vision of what Jonah is really all about, okay? Um, so, quick recap of last time. Uh, so we talked about uh, how the book of Jonah is a four-chapter book, okay, it's a minor prophet, four-chapter book, and it can be split in half, scene one, scene two. The first two chapters are Jonah, the pagans, and the sea, and the last two chapters are Jonah, the pagans, and the city. And we talked about how there was a parallel. I'm not going to go through each one of these, but you'll see if you read through the book of Jonah, there's a parallel for each thing that happens when he goes out to sea, and then when he goes out to the city of Nineveh, right? And we had talked about also uh, how the book of Jonah is not necessarily a book about uh, social relational kind of me message, but the book of Jonah is a more theological message, right? It's not about how you treat your neighbors, but it's more about, about God, right? There's a deeper meaning about the understanding of who God is through the book of Jonah. Not saying that it has nothing to do with like your relationships with other people and whatnot, uh, but I do believe that there is more of a theological backing to this story. Right? Now, and I also talked about last time that there's a connection between Jonah uh, and the parable, one of my favorite parables that was told by Jesus uh, of the prodigal son right? in Luke 15 that ran away from the father. Right? The first half of the book is like Jonah and the prodigal son who runs away. And then the second half of the book is like Jonah, who is like the older brother, who obeys the father and does what the father wants and stays home, but then ultimately gets angry. Right? Especially when the father shows grace and, re and accepts the, the repentance that uh, the younger son or the, the prodigal son um, uh, gives, right? So it's an interesting parable, in my opinion, of the prodigal son that ends with a question mark to the pharisaical son, just like the book of Jonah. If you look at the, uh, the end of Jonah, it ends with a question to the pharisaical uh, the Pharisee prophet, right? And I think just maybe there's a parallel. And maybe this parallel is something that Jesus recognized. He mentions it throughout his ministry as well. Um, uh, the book of Jonah, right? So, and then we talked about only three verses. So last time we talked, we only talked about the three verses. And we talked about how Jonah, the name Jonah means what? Does anyone remember? Dove, okay. And then his father's name, Jonah, the son of Amittai. Amittai meaning of faith faithfulness, right? And when you hear that, you should laugh, right? It's, it's a comedy, right? It's, it's satire. It doesn't make sense because clearly he is not this innocent, elegant dove. 
And he's clearly not being faithful, right? He's clearly disobeying God and running away. Okay? Then we talked about how unheard of this mission that God was giving to Jonah. Because why? Because he's calling Jonah to go to a city called Nineveh, which was known for what? Like their sins and their terrible things that they did. But, and we talked about last week, we kind of went in depth and did a little history kind of lecture style thing about how the city of Nineveh was known for its cruelty. They would take people, skin them alive, and put them up like rugs on the wall. They would take the, the family members' heads and cut them off and then have other people in the family carry them on sticks. Does anyone remember this? Okay, no? Okay. So anyways, we talked about that. So the city of Nineveh was known for doing that to their captives. And that's Jonah's people, right? So we see how Jonah himself is like, Dude, of course not. Why would I want to go to a city that does these kind of things to my people? Or that have done these kind of things to my people? Right? And then we kind of wrapped it up talking about how Jonah and his whole idea of running away from God. And clearly he has a problem with God. Okay? And that is the problem that Jonah faces. Right? He faces the problem of God, but also of God's mercy. Right? And it's clearly at this point, Jonah is having a theological problem. But I also believe more than theological problem, he's also having a hard problem. Unless Jonah can see his own sin, and unless Jonah can see for himself that he is living in need of God's mercy, then Jonah never and never will understand how God can be so merciful to people that are so evil and still be just and faithful. And it's interesting, we wrapped it up with this, no matter how much Jonah runs, okay, God always seems to be one step ahead of him. Amen? Right? And I think that's pretty relevant to us today, too. Just as Jonah tries using different strategies to escape from God, God is also using his strategies as well. And he continues to show us mercy and grace in ways that we may never understand or even deserve. Right? Now, I want to... Oh, we'll skip through this. Okay? I want to show you, um, we'll talk about that a little bit later. I want to show you uh, a picture as we begin. Okay? So does anyone know, uh, I'm so used to looking back here, but anyways. Does anyone know what this is? Google it's Google Map, right? Map of, what is this area? Los Angeles. Of LA, of where we live. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about this. So if you look here, you see last year University. I can't use the pointer anymore. Okay, so if you look at uh, the beginning point, I went to school at La Sierra University. Uh, when I first came here, if you didn't know, I started working uh, part-time uh, as the youth pastor, English ministry pastor at Valley United Korean Feminist Church, which is out in San Fernando Valley. This was my commute every weekend. Friday, drive all the way out, come back. Saturday morning, drive all the way out, Come back, okay? My average commute was about an hour, 30 minutes to two hours, okay? There's always traffic, always traffic, guaranteed, okay? Now, some of you guys might think like, dude, Pastor Tim, you're crazy. Like, why would you do this every weekend? I don't know. I don't know why I did it. But anyways, uh, my responsibilities were very minimal. So I wasn't going out there throughout the week. But every weekend, every Friday and Saturday, uh, I was dry- making this commute from Riverside all the way to the San Fernando Valley. And I remember the first time I made this commute. I, was, I, I remember that morning. It was uh, Saturday morning when I went to go visit the church. 
I remember waking up at six in the morning thinking to myself, what in the world have I gotten myself into? Why did I, why did I decide to visit this church? So I wake up at six, I get ready and I head out. I want to be there, you know, at like 9.30 because I don't know what time they start. No one told me anything. So um, I leave at about seven o'clock thinking that I'm going to hit traffic. There was like a car accident on the 210 and it was terrible. I had a miserable drive. And for most of you guys, I think most of you have grown up, born, you know, raised in Southern California. Maybe you guys are like used to the long commuting times. But from where I'm from in Alaska, you know, I can wake up five minutes before church and still not be late, right? That's how close it is. Like, I live like, you know, like three miles away from the church. I can get there like five minutes. Easy, right? And so you guys are like, oh, well, that's like, that's like me going to like the convenience store down the street. But for me, going to church and taking two hours is literally like driving to another city and back in Alaska. So it was so like, I was so tired. I was like, I cannot believe I'm doing this. Why am I making this commute? And I remember getting there, you know, 9.30 in the morning after the, getting past all the car accident or whatever. Um, I remember the first few times that I did it. There was a lot of things to see. I don't know if you've you know, made these commutes before, long-term commutes, and you see a lot of things. Like, you know, you go down the 91, there's like an In-N-Out over there, and there's like a Burger King on the other side, and there's a few like parks and whatnot, and you go up the 71 all the way to the 210, and you see like this luscious field of like trees and like water, and you see all these things in 91, you know, or the 210, you see, you know, a lot of cars, and there's a lot of sights to see as you go. And the first few times I remember like being alert and just like seeing all these things. Like, oh, wow, that's so cool. Like, oh, I've never seen that before. Like, whoa, what is that, right? There's like a huge like mosque, like on the 71. I remember when they were, when I first got here, they were still building it. So I saw them like slowly getting bigger and bigger. And every week is like, oh, that's so cool. Like, like it was something to look at. After maybe a year of doing this every single weekend, and eventually I started going during the weekdays to see some church kids. But I remember, after a while, those things that you notice while you're driving, they just like, you don't really notice them, right? There were times when I would be driving and, you know, I would remember seeing certain like points, like certain streets and certain exits. Uh, but then after a year, it'd be like, I'd be driving and then I see an exit and be like, oh, what in the world? Like, I'm already here? Like, what happened to those other exits? Like those other things that I used to notice all the time. And maybe you guys have had that moment too. When you drive a commute so often, or you drive to a certain location so often, that it becomes almost like second nature. Like you could literally fall asleep and like drive the commute. You guys, is that just me? Oh yeah, I'm just crazy then, right? Okay, so maybe it's just me. But for me, it's like the past 30 minutes of a drive, it's like, wait, how did I get here? I'm already here? Okay, maybe I am crazy. Please don't drive like that, okay? That's not safe at all, right? Or maybe if you guys have driven up to PUC for the West Coast camp meeting, you know the five is just like, just straight all the way up. It's like super boring. Like literally you could fall asleep and drive and be okay. Is anyone familiar with that drive on the five to NorCal? So it's like, I remember when I would drive up there, you know, you see like the cow fields, like there's like tons of cows just like, you know, pooping and eating and doing their thing on the side of the freeway and it like smells terrible. And then there's like times when I'm driving up there and I just like, oh wait, I'm already, I'm already in Bakersfield. Like, oh, I'm already here. Like these things, okay, maybe it's just me. All right, so um, I want to show you another picture. Uh, does anyone recognize this? Any violin players see this? Okay, 
So some people, okay? This is something called stratic exercises. Okay, can I see about the violin, June's violin, please? Okay, so I'm gonna do something that I'm not very comfortable doing with because I haven't played the violin uh, in a very long time. So when I was playing violin, I had a Russian uh, violin teacher and I absolutely hated her, okay? <laughs> I did not like her because this was the thing that she made me practice all the time. And this was her thing. She was like, if you can practice this, Timothy, she's like, if you can practice this, you can become a world-class violinist. And I'm still not a world-class violinist. But the thing about stratic exercises, uh, the point of this is to help you with your finger strength and memorization of where your fingers are placed, right? So I remember when I first did this, um, it was very repetitive. So it's like, okay, don't expect anything, okay? It's been a while, okay? So it's... And then you go to the next line. Okay, that sounds terrible. But, okay, you do this over and over again. And she was so picky. As you can tell, like, I'm not in tune, right? You can, you can hear the mistakes, and I'll just put this down now, okay? But you can hear the slight differences. And for her, she would hear that, and she'd be like, no. You start from the very beginning, and you do it all over again. There would be times when I would be practicing this and playing this, and because it's like so repetitive, I would forget how many times I did it. So I'd be playing and be like, wait, did I play it once? Did I play it twice? Like, do I need to play it again? If I mess up, I have to start all over again. Like, I don't want to do this, right? So this ideal is called uh, perpetual motion. Have you, are you guys familiar with that phrase? What does, that, what does it mean to be in perpetual motion? It's like an infinite, never-ending cycle, right? It's like over and over and over again, right? Now, some of us, if not all of us, maybe come and find ourselves in this perpetual state of mind, right? We're kind of like cruising through. We're kind of there, but we're not really there. And even more so, in our spiritual lives, some of us are in perpetual motion, right? Regardless of how long you've been a Christian, whether you've been in the church for a short amount of time or a long amount of time, whether you're new to the church or old to the church, maybe you've experienced a stage in your spiritual walk where, you're, where things are fine, right? Things are going well. You have everything together, but then things start to fizzle with your relationship with God. And you're just not in the same place that you were anymore. Now, today, I'm not going to try pinpointing like, okay, this is the problem, why you're in perpetual motion, like why your spiritual state is like this. That's not what we're, we're going to be talking about. I'm not here to expose you either, but there's many reasons. Sometimes it's just like the season of life, right? You're just at a stage in your life where it's like the time of the year and you're just not feeling it, right? You're just like, yeah, well, okay, God is there, but you know, I, I need to step back, right? It's like midlife crisis or teenage years, okay? Or maybe it's the decisions that we make. Sometimes the decisions we make Put us in this perpetual state of motion. Timothy Keller says this. He says that every act of disobedience or every decision we make has a storm attached to it. In other words, every decision we make has consequences, right? Well, there's clearly something off, okay? When the connection that you once had with Jesus is no longer within your grasp, it seems that something is lost. This is what we call spiritual apathy, okay? Or in other words, it's this ideal of falling asleep at the wheel, right? Being stuck in this ideal of perpetual motion, okay? And this is an important lesson that we can learn when we dive into Jonah chapter 1. And that's what I kind of want to explore with you guys today. So I want to see how Jonah falls asleep at the wheel and see what we can learn about our own state of spiritual apathy. 
So let's start just from the top again. Jonah chapter 1. And the word of the Lord came to son, or Jonah, son of Amittai. So just remember, when you're seeing these, when you see Lord in all caps in your Bible, that's the Hebrew word for Yahweh. It's a personal name for God. So just keep that in mind. Keep that in mind, okay? Jonah, this dove, son of Amittai, faithfulness. Ha, ha, ha. He's, you know, opposite of that, Okay. Uh, and we continue, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Verse 3, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went to Joppa where he found the ship bound uh, for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So Jonah's mission, okay, is not God's mission, but it's to run away from the Lord. Is that clear? Like he's clearly disobeying God, right? He goes as far like west as he can away from the city of Nineveh to Tarshish, right? This was considered the end of the earth, okay? Verse 4, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm rose that the ship threatened to break up. Okay, so if some of your translations, if you're looking in your Bible, or if you're looking at the screen, it says, you know, the ship threatened uh, to break up. Some of your um, translations may say... Uh, uh, well, actually, I don't think any of your versions will say it. But uh, in the Hebrew, original Hebrew, it's interesting because this word is actually a verb. Threatened to break up is actually a verb. It's, it's as if the word is animated. So the ship is not like a ship. It's like, it's like a character, right? So the Hebrew word is kashab, right? And literally it translates as to think. So it's like the ship is like thinking about, should I break up? Like the storm is like really violent, like... Maybe it's time for me to break up. And you should laugh. Ha, ha, ha. Right? You should laugh because this is comedy. Even the ship itself is thinking about breaking up. Right? This is the, how the story is painted. It's a beautiful story, you guys. Okay? Now, verse 5. We continue. All the sailors, sailors were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to land the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Now, okay, God is going after his man, Right? And some may think, like, oh, this is the Old Testament God, the angry God that wants to zap and kill his people. This is what you may think, okay? But remember the big picture, okay? We have God going after Jonah because God's mission is to do what? Is to reach people, right? God's mission is to give mercy and grace and to extend his love to all kinds of people. So it's kind of like the love, so you parents would understand. It's kind of like the love that a parent would show their own child, especially if they knew their child was going to do something that would put them in danger, right? You would do anything and everything to get in the way to help prevent your child from going down the wrong path, right? This is the image that we get, okay? Now, we carry, before we carry on, I want to show you guys something, or I want to ask you guys something. What were the sailors doing at this point? Were they awake? Were they asleep? They're awake, right? And what else are they doing? They're trying to save them. They're throwing cargo overboard. And what did they do? The first sentence. The sailors were afraid and they cried out to their own God. These guys were praying to their gods, right? Lowercase g. Okay. Now, during this time, uh, it's very common to have a polytheistic worldview. Meaning that there's many different gods that they worshipped. Are you guys familiar with that word? We are monotheistic. We worship one God. Polytheistic meaning many gods. So these people at that time, there's many different gods. Uh, and so what they would do is they would cry out and be like, hey, you cry, you cry to this God. I'll cry to this God. And maybe we'll get the right God, right? This is kind of just how things were back in those days. And it's fascinating because these sailors, one thing that we need to notice, 
These sailors were straight up afraid. They understood that this storm was not just some regular storm that they're going to just wave out, right? This was a storm of some kind of divine nature and divine power. This is a scary kind of storm, right? So we see them throwing cargo overboard. We see them praying to their many gods, right? And this is, like I said, this is, this is the routine, right? When they pray to their gods, they don't know which god they got angry. So what do they do? Pray to every single god that they know and hope that the storm dies off, right? So you can see the scene. Imagine with me. Paint this picture in your mind. You see the chaos of the storm raging. The water thrashing to the side of their ship. And then we have Jonah, right? And where is Jonah? He's gone below, right? Down deep to the bottom of the ship in a deep sleep, right? There's a word play that the book of Jonah does. And I love this, you guys. This is my nerdy, like, biblical side coming out, right? There's a word play. There's this, like, red, like, lacing that goes through the first chapter of Jonah. If you look at the words, it talks about Jonah going down to Joppa, right? He goes down into the ship. He went down into the depths of that ship. He laid down and fell into a deep sleep. What do you guys see here? There's this, this kind of notion of just like going down, down, right? Jonah is going away, farther and farther away from the surface, right? So you look at this scene. We have pagan sailors that are super active and alert because this crazy divine storm, right? And then we find this religious man of God. We find this religious man of God, literally and spiritually, going down, down, down into this deep slumber, right? The spiritual apathy, okay? falling asleep at the wheel, this perpetual motion. That's so interesting, okay? because Jonah, the book of Jonah is painting this picture okay? of a man's decision, of his sin and the decisions that leads him into this perpetual state of spiritual slumber, the falling asleep at the wheel kind of picture. Right? Now, because God's bigger picture message is finding a way to bring repentance and mercy and grace to people. This picture should be super. You should, red flag should be coming up and be like, "Wow, what is Jonah doing?" Right? Of course, we understand. Please don't get me wrong. Jonah, of course, doesn't want to do this for many reasons. Okay? The Ninevites, their their track record is not good. Their violent cruelty, the things that they did, you know. But truly, the heart of the problem, the root of the problem of Jonah's sin and his rebellion, is that I think that, or is that he thinks that he is better than God. He tries to take things into his own hands, and I believe this is exactly the downfall of Jonah, right? And you see, this decision that he made from the very beginning is what led him slowly into this slumber, right? And slowly, slowly, he begins to fall asleep, and he becomes more and more distant from God. And it's like, it's like think about it. Okay, there's a storm going around. It's crazy, it's chaotic, it's madness, and Jonah is simply at the bottom of this ship, unaware of what's going on around him, okay? With this image that we have painted in our minds now, it's not only ridiculous to us to this day, but it's really a crazy picture of what's going on spiritually in the life of Jonah, okay? Because think about it. Who is the one actually suffering? Who is suffering from the decisions that Jonah made? Oh, I don't know what happened here. Can you guys go back? <laughs> okay, what happened? What, what is... Who's suffering from all of this? Jonah's clearly fine, okay? If you guys are not getting it, Jonah's fine, right? He's asleep like a baby in the midst of this madness. 
It's the pagan sailors that are suffering from this whole thing, right? Jonah's sin. Jonah's selfishness of thinking that he knows better than God and everyone else. And he acts according to what he thinks is best for him. This is what leads him into the state of ignoring everything and everyone around him. And he's, and he's the one that brought ruin to them, frankly speaking, right? Jonah has become, in a sense, this wrecking ball to not only his own life, but to the lives of others. And he's completely oblivious to the fact that his decisions have created this very awkward situation. You see, this is what makes the picture so, so saddening. Because we find a man of God who has completely fallen asleep at this wheel. And he carries the name, I am a man of God. And is not only doing damage to those around him, but he's ultimately damaging himself. Right? Let's keep going at verse 6. Right? So verse 6 says, uh, The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. So the person that has to wake up Jonah is who? The captain, right? And it's ironic because the captain is saying, hey, get up, call on your God. Maybe he will notice us. And it's like, maybe Jonah's God will notice them. But I think it's very clear if this is the situation that they're in, Jonah's God already recognizes and realizes and notices where they're at, right? The very reason why they're in the mess is because Jonah's God already notices them, right? But what's even more funny, Jonah, who is a man of God, who is a prophet, who has done work in the past, he has to be reminded to do something as simple as praying, right? A man of God, let me say this again, a man of God has to be reminded to do something as simple as praying. You see, God sent his prophet to point the pagans towards himself, okay? But now the pagans are pointing the prophet to God. Mercy, right? She gasps, like, oh my, oh my goodness, like, are you serious? Right? <gasps> right, exactly. And maybe that's some of us today, right? We are all men and women and children of God, and yet sometimes we have to be reminded by the world to pray, right? What's more shocking in this story is that Jonah is reminded to pray uh, by none other than these pagan sailors, people who worshipped many different gods, okay? Let's keep going. Verse 7. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Right? So they decide, okay, let's, let's, gamble, let's cast lots. Right? In ancient cultures, in biblical times, this was basically the same thing as rolling a dice. Right? So they would roll dice, and it was a way to determine um, what the will of the gods were. It was one way that they would do things. And, of course, after eliminating all the options, they prayed, they threw off the cargo, and they did everything that they could. They decided to just throw the dice to see, all right, maybe there is a solution. Maybe God's will will come out of throwing a dice. It's ironic. Uh, but it works, right? The lots fall on Jonah, okay? okay? Jonah wins, or Jonah loses, right? Whatever, you know, cup half empty, half full, your perspective. In verse 8, it then says this. So they asked him, uh, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Now, these are all questions that deal with identity, right? These are questions not like, you know, they're not obviously asking, like, all right, Jonah, let's have a cup of tea and let's just talk about who you are, like, job interview style. No, this is like, who in the world are you? What, what are you doing on our boat, 
right? Now, these questions are important because these questions uh, seek to find out truly who uh, Jonah was, right? Because in their minds, asking these questions about the, his identity goes hand in hand with who he worshipped, right? Who you were and what you worshipped were practically two sides of the same coin, right? This is, this is a biblical language, right? So in other words, to ask who are you is also asking to who do you belong to? Whose are you, right? This is the question that they're asking. And this is the answer he gives, right? I think this is ridiculous. And you should be thinking, Jonah is ridiculous. He says in verse 9, he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry. I can see him just sitting there, like, all calm, just, like, maybe yawning, just as he's waking up. Oh, yeah, I'm a Hebrew, you know. Uh, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of sea and dry land. It's very interesting. He gets it. He understands what they're asking for, right? And all he has to say that he's of Hebrew descent, he worships the Lord. But it's interesting because based on Jonah's response to this question, you see that he puts his race before his religion, right? Let me say that again. In his mind, okay, Jonah's race, his ethnicity, where he belonged to in terms of his background came before God and his religion. He didn't introduce himself as, oh, I'm a prophet of God. He introduces himself as, oh, I'm a Hebrew, Okay. If you remember the last time we talked, we talked about how this was such a struggle for him because he was against the ideal of helping these, these enemies that are killing his own people. Right? You can see that the political side of Jonah is so much more important than his religion. Right? Yes, Jonah had faith in God. Okay? We know that. But in my eyes, Jonah's faith was not deep and it was not fundamental to his identity as his race and his nationality was. Do you guys see that? Okay? Maybe it's just me. Okay? But I also believe, uh, this is the reason to believe that this could be one of the many reasons why uh, Jonah really didn't want to go to Nineveh and call them to repentance. How, and how different are we, right? Frankly speaking, sometimes I feel like we're not much different in terms of attitude. Our relationship with God may be service level, then de- deep it in the heart. And just like Jonah, God and his love isn't the fundamental layer of our identity. For example, we may sincerely believe that Jesus died for our sins and that we receive salvation and we receive eternal life through accepting the grace that God extends to us. Yet our significance and our financial se- our security can be grounded in things like our finances, in our career, in the school that we go to. Okay? Not to say that these things are bad. Don't get me wrong. Right? But when we start putting these things before God, when we start saying that these are the things that make me who I am, then we have a problem. Right? But now get this. It becomes really funny all of a sudden. Because Jonah is telling them what? Right? I worship the Lord, okay? the God of the heavens, but also the guy that made the seas and everything. So you see, they're... At sea, they're in a boat, there's a vicious storm. So some of your translations may say fear of the Lord, right? Instead of worship the Lord, uh, which if you studied the wisdom literature, the wisdom books in the Old Testament, do you guys remember what the wisdom literature is? Okay, these people aren't listening. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job are the wisdom literatures, okay? You would know that fear is not like fear. It's like, oh, I'm afraid of you. But rather, it's a deep, genuine respect and an honor for someone or something, right? So if you're reading this, you've got to be thinking like, dude, are you kidding me? There's no way that you fear the Lord. There's no way that you worship God. The way that you're acting right now, Jonah, no. 
You don't fear the Lord. You don't worship God. It's clear that his words, his religious confession of faith that Jonah makes, clearly contradict all the choices and the actions that he had made. And some of you guys might think like, dude, Jonah, you're like this? I would never be like that, right? But that's the reality, right? If you start thinking that way, then the author of the book of Jonah has caught you red-handed, okay? Because we're no different. And many of us fall into this trap of spiritual apathy, and we've fallen asleep at the wheel. Verse 10, it says, this terrified them, right? Because, you know, they're at sea, and Jonah's like, I messed up, but I worship the God that created the sea, right? They're terrified, and they ask, what in the world have you done? And they knew because he was running, he, they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. And the sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? And then he replies, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. But instead, what do the men do? They do their best to roll back to land. Like, no way, I'm going to kill this guy. Like, let's go back, right? But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then verse 14, then they cried out to the Lord, Lord, please do not... Do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. So scholars have two options, and we're going to wrap up pretty soon, and why Jonah responded the way that he did of, hey, just throw me into the water, right? One, they say this. They say, the reason why Jonah said throw me in is because he actually felt bad. He was like, oh, man, I really messed up. I screwed up. Like, the only way to fix this Throw me in, right? So he was being repentant. So that's what some scholars say. But two, some scholars say that he was actually trying to get farther away from God. And I like to think that the second option is more true. Because if you think about it, if God was truly repentant, because if God saw his heart and knew that, dude, Jonah is, is really going to go to Nineveh now and do what I want, then why would the storm continue to be, right? The storm would have ceased and they would have been able to go, get back. But that's not the case, right? Verse 15. Uh, then they took Jonah. Ultimately, they, these pagan people, like, watching out for the man of God. They don't want to kill him. They throw him overboard, right? And the raging sea suddenly grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Man, this is a tragedy, you guys. Okay? Jonah chapter 1. This is the real tragedy, in my opinion. Is that Jonah, because he was asleep at the wheel, because of his spiritual apathy, he's stuck in this perpetual motion. Because he was spiritually disconnected, he failed to see the amazing work that God was doing in the lives of people that were around him. Do you guys see that? This guy was asleep when he had the opportunity to spread the gospel message to these people. Because he was so caught up with his own personal interests and desires, he failed to see past himself. And it was the people who didn't even believe in Yahweh that Jonah believed in, right? This is sad, but at the same time, this is very beautiful. It's beautiful in the fact that God is still capable and forever will be capable of bringing people to him, no matter what the circumstances are, right? Amen? But at the same time, it's sad because the people who profess that they are of God have failed to live out a life that corresponds to that declaration. Now, you might be wondering, okay, pastor, like this is depressing. This is a terrible way to end the sermon. Uh, what's the resolution? Look at the last verse, verse, um, verse 17. 
It says, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, a lot of the times, like, veggie tales or biblical stories, uh, like, that, you know, cartoon this story, this is like the hooray, like, Jonah saved, right? But no, this is not the hooray, Jonah is saved part. That's not what this verse is about. But the lesson is this. Something that we can pull from this is that despite the rebellion, despite the spiritual disconnection of Jonah, despite all of that, God still has this mysterious way of extending this thing called mercy and extending this thing called grace to Jonah, right? Despite everything that happened, despite what was going to come, as we know in the future chapters, God pours out the very grace and the mercy that Jonah was supposed to take to the Ninevites But God pours it out to Jonah himself. So as we wrap this part up, you know, I pray that whatever conception or whatever understanding you had of Jonah prior to uh, today, I pray that we, we don't get caught in this sense of spiritual apathy, that we don't get caught in this perpetual emotion of life. Let us be alert. Let us be awakened by the work that God is doing in our lives, but also the lives of those that are around us. The very grace and the very mercy that God has to share with other people, God is also extending that mercy and grace to us. We're no better than those that are out on the streets, that are are caught in this this storm of sin. I pray that we receive this mercy and grace as well. That this mercy and grace that God extends to us like he extended to Jonah, will be something that we can cling on to and not something that we can lose while we're asleep at the wheel.